John's Gospel, chapter 4, and I think I will read all the 24 verses, the whole story of the woman of Samaria. And we're going to see how the Holy Spirit enables us to master our emotions. My title tonight is Spirit-Filled Emotions. Spirit-Filled Emotions. How to allow the Holy Spirit to so fill our lives that our emotions come under the control of the Holy Spirit. And we have an example of a woman who I think experienced just that. Okay, the Samaritan woman. Verse 1, John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. He left Judah, Judea, and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, notice it says, but he needed. Now, he didn't need to go there. It wasn't some old-fashioned or you know, early version of ways that says, go this way because everywhere the traffic is bad. This was well out of his way. But he needed to go there because he had an appointment, a divine appointment with a woman. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's, Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it in himself as well as the sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living water springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, and Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and the Jews say that in Jerusalem, the place where, well, is where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I love this passage. God help me one day to get down to write that book. And I, every time I say it, I give out the title so somebody else will go and write the book and steal my title. And okay, well, if they do it, they do it. Thirst for spirit. And I've discovered this in my, some of the most enjoyable aspects of my work, apart from preaching and teaching to you lovely people, is communicating with those who are way outside of the Christian church, or way outside any kind of influence of any kind of church. Maybe they have some influence of another religion. Most of them are kind of not really tuned that way. And, and it's just so wonderful because I learn so much. And, talk to them and I've discovered this that in my heart and the heart of every single person there is a thirst for spirit God created us to be living temples of his presence and the only thing that can truly and deeply satisfy is living the truly spirit filled life and I know in our language, as charismatic Pentecostal believers, we describe the spirit-filled life in so many ways and terms. Sometimes it's about expressive worship. Sometimes it's about speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's about gifts of the spirit and so forth. And I think all these things are essential parts of what it means to be filled with the spirit. But to be truly filled with the spirit means that you have such a thirst after God and you pursue him with all of your heart, knowing that he is the only one who brings satisfaction into your life. And that's how Jesus confronted this lady. He said, go bring your husband. And, and, and he cut through all the discussion and talk about buckets and ropes and Jews and Samaritans and all that. When she said, I have no husband. Yes, you have no husband. You've had five and one now is not your husband. And, and he, she later went and said, come and meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. The whole of her life was summed up in that word of knowledge. The whole of her life was about pursuing satisfaction because she had a thirst for something. She didn't know what that thirst was for, but she believed somewhere along the line that if only she could find the right relationship, only find the right husband, the right partner, if only she could find that right relationship, she would have full satisfaction. And it seems to me she'd, been, she'd gone from one disappointment to another disappointment and Jesus met her at exactly the right moment. I must go through. Samaria. Now that's the background to the story. I want to teach from this some principles of what it means to be spirit-filled in your emotions. The biggest mistake we make when it comes to emotions is that we talk about them directly or think that we can influence them directly. And uh, that just doesn't happen. Many of us as believers have been given the idea somewhere that, you know, we should never be afraid, we should never be down, and so we are, we're always putting on an act and never really exposing the fact that sometimes we're hurting, sometimes we're feeling very, very low, and, uh, and so on, uh, and frustrated, and, and, and so on. 
And because we have to be happy, clappy, positive Christians, we put on a smile and we push those emotions down and, and they do damage because you really cannot get rid of them that way. So how is it that you can bring your emotions under control? Never directly, never directly. I remember once I was rehearsing a part in the Royal Ballet. It was a, a certain solo from a, uh, a ballet that had been revived for us as in our particular group. And uh, the person who had first danced this was the first great male dancer of British ballet. So the history behind this and all the pressure that was on me to do this well. And I had a man who went back to that era, very elderly man who's now no longer on the planet. And, uh, and he would come every time and he would rehearse this. He would beat me into the ground. I know at some stage I discovered he also danced it. And so he dances, the rhythm was so difficult you had to spin around to this rhythm. And I had to pop. And that's every, every beat was a whole spin around. Back into the I won't try it today. Okay, so, and it was impossible. And anyway, one day I got it. And he stopped, he stopped everything, stopped everybody, came right down. And he had a, a kind of arthritic limp, and I'm not mocking him. It's just, it was just, I remember it carefully, clumped down, clumped down. And he walked right up to me, and he, and he got so close to me that he could have whispered, and I would have heard him, but he shouted, once more, this time with feeling. So, oh my. So, you know, as a dancer, you have to feel and have to emote and show some of some people here, some people in the in the theatre know about. You know the difference between being in the theatre and being in the ministry? In the theatre, you act on stage. Ah, all right, okay. So, so <laughs> you got it, you got it, you got it, you got it. I'm really making a joke about the fact that so many of us feel we have to act all the time. Don't act. Don't act all the time. Learn to be yourself and learn to express your emotions. And, and it's not about just showing, you know, how are you? We're worshiping God, so we lift our hands and put a smile on our face. And that's not joy. That's not joy. So we have to find an indirect way of getting at them. Now, in our broken world, uh, emotions somehow have lost the full functioning that God intends. The original purpose for emotions is to deliver us from a spot from Star Wars experience. Spock from Star Wars. Remember him? Remember him? Oh, okay. All right, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you need to get out more. Did I say Star? Oh, thank you very much. You corrected me. That's very good. Thank you. It's always good. Somebody corrected me about Butox this morning, and you corrected me about... So we know you go to the cinema regularly. So what is it? Star... No, Star Trek. Now we got it. Now, he, he was half Vulcan, half human, and had no emotions. Just total rational mind. And somehow, we, we, we feel that we are supposed to be like that as Christians. No, 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 no. God gave us emotions, the full range of human emotions for richness, color, and we should appreciate that. And even in our broken world, emotions, sometimes even the emotions we think are negative, have a purpose. Fear warns us of danger. And you have the fight or flight response. Anger stimulates our energy, so long as you learn to attack the problem and not the person. <laughs> Sorrow drives you to make things right. Sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're sorrowful, it's, there's something wrong and, and maybe there's something you can do. Guilt feelings, if they're guided by the Spirit, can bring, bring us to godly sorrow and repentance. And joy and satisfaction 
when they are invested, when it's invested in the right things, lead us to pursue God in a godly way. But it doesn't always work like that. Because sometimes anger can become very destructive, sorrow can lead to despair, guilt can result in the pursuit of self-righteousness, and delight can sadly but truly be found in our deceptive way of thinking in the wrong things. So let's have a look now at how this works and operates. Now, I don't want you to be bogged down by uh, the, the PowerPoint, and uh, you know we, we tend to just reserve this for, for seminars. And here, I'm building up a picture, and I will not go through this in detail. I'm building up a picture of what happens on the inside of us. Remember, I started by thirst for spirit. This woman was longing for something. She was longing for a satisfaction which she learned to believe would be found in a certain thing, such as a relationship. And she learned to believe that. She, somehow she, she got to the place where she believed that the way to be satisfied is to have a relationship, a deep, meaningful relationship with another human being, with a man, with a husband. And, and as a result of that, certain desires, she was driven by her desires. Desires to seek out a companion, desires to be joined to somebody else. And, and as a result of those desires, she, she had very clear goals. I must be married, because being married is going to be the answer to my problems. It, it, it's a funny thing. I come out occasionally to say hi to you guys. It, it, it's a funny thing. A skeptical friend of mine didn't mean this seriously, but said, you know, he discovered in his life as a, as a clinical psychiatrist and psycho clinical psychologist that many people look at marriage as, as a castle under siege. Those on the outside are trying to get in and those on the inside trying to get out. But, but anyway, <laughs> one, 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 thing, one thing is for sure and certain. If you make, that's absolutely not true in the die household, of course, either way. But of course, um, but the point is, is that if you make of your husband or wife or any relationship or anything, a career or anything, if you make of it an idol, it will fail you and it will not satisfy you. So we're building up a picture. Now, as a result of those goals, the lady would have devised certain strategies. Now, let's not worry about that because I want to go to, to, the, to the very next point, which is where I really want to begin. And this is learning a little bit about the, the Bible teaching on, on the theory of human behavior. Well, if it's Bible teaching, it's not a theory, but why we do what we do. Have you ever wondered about that? Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? A lot of it is shaped by our early experiences and the beliefs that have shaped our desires and so on. But one thing is very, very clear. Behavior is goal-directed. And we are strongly motivated to go in the direction that we believe our true deepest desires will be satisfied. So this lady, all her life, she said that's the whole of my life, all my life has been given over to pursuit of satisfaction through relationships. And we can only think of what might have happened to her when one after the other, those relationships broke down and failed to satisfy. How tragic. Now, let's just take this a little bit further. So you have 
a behavior which is goal-directed. You are seeking to fulfill your goal of satisfaction by pursuing something in particular. Usually, until the Holy Spirit breaks into your life, this is an idol. I know we can't uh, see it on the screen right now, but make a note of Jeremiah 2, verse 13, and make a note of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, and Jeremiah 17, verse 9. We may put the scriptures up later, but Jeremiah, uh, 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 the first first one, I forgot what it is now, Jeremiah 2, verse 13, is this. God says, my people have committed two, two sins. It's astonishing, committed two sins. First of all, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Remember in John chapter five, it's all about a fountain. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first thing. Second thing is they have dug out for themselves broken water tanks that can hold no water. And he's talking about the idolatry that the people of Judah had got into way, way back then. Now that's the story of every single one of us. When we turn away from God, we don't turn into something neutral. When we turn away from God, we we open our lives and there's a huge vacuum, there's a huge emptiness and the thirst for spirit continues and we try to fill that with all kind of substitutes for God, which is another word for idols. Then Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so our heart is deceiving us as to where true satisfaction is found. Okay, you got that. Our heart is deceiving us as to where true satisfaction is found. Now then, let's suppose, and we, we, we can really think that this might have happened from time to time in this lady's life. There came a moment when she met a man, she married him, she was in love with him, and she thought, that he was in love with her. Now, to be fair, we don't know if these all died one after the other. But there's no, there's no suggestion that she was a serial widower. Otherwise, she might have been a serial killer. I don't know. But the point is, is that we're going to assume that those relationships broke down. Okay. So there was a time when her hopes were raised. This might happen to you. Do you recognize that feeling? Let me not get too personal about relationships. Let's start then, quickly move on. Maybe you're just at the beginning of a relationship now and you think, oh, that's going to give me everything that I want. This person is everything that I ever dreamed about. Oh, watch it, watch it, watch it. I smell a hint of idolatry. Be very, very careful. Oh, by the way, you know the fact that relationships are deeply satisfying, especially if they're submitted to God by the Holy Spirit, is true, but not when you make them first thing in your life. Okay, so there would have come a time where she had some kind of realization of her goal to be married and find in her husband some form of of relational satisfaction. And so that might be a partial experience of the goal, partially fulfilled, or even maybe completely fulfilled. You might say, well, you know, if I move to a semi-detached house, if I, I, I got another job, if I had a pay rise, if I changed this, if I changed churches. Why do people change churches? They change churches because of their changing clothes. They're going to be, find something better. And the problem is with them. They remove themselves and take the problems with them. Stay and sort the problems out. Amen. Okay. I don't know where that came from, but it felt good. Okay. So partial or complete. Now then, when that happens, when you get what you want, how do you feel? 
honestly, it's up there on the screen, but answer me for yourself. When you get what you want, when something you really desire and you get it, what do you feel? Happy, yeah? Satisfied, yeah? Okay? So, and this is why it's hopeless just to go, unless the Holy Spirit shows you, just to go up to somebody and say, your life is a misery without Jesus. And, you know, this happened. Eldon Corsi told this story. It stuck with me. I learned as a new believer. So there was this elderly person, one of the old members of the old cistern. Any people know the cistern? Who the cistern are? Well, they're the brethren, but it's the women. Okay. It's the old sisterhood. And there she was. She had a face like a turnip. That's nothing to do with her personal beauty, which I'm sure was extravagant, but it was the expression on her face. And there was this young couple just sitting there on the wall, gazing in each other's eyes. Young man, young woman. And they were so in love. And she handed them the tract. Are you miserable, depressed, and lost hope. She gave it to them, and read it, and said, actually, no, this looks like it really belongs to you. <laughs> okay, so, so be careful. <clears throat> now, when you scratch beneath the surface, this happiness is, is weak, it's based on weak satisfaction, but there is an emotion of kind of, sort of being kind of satisfied, okay? And a lot of people live like that. They've got a partial realization of their goals, and they kind of, kind of enjoy life to a point. But the issue is, is that it's not deep enough. It's not deep enough. The, the, the problem becomes that, that this is, is based on something that has no, no foundation. So, so for example, you know, if, if your happiness, let me use a horrendous example. If your happiness is in your husband, what if you lose him? If your happiness is in your job, what if you lose it? If your happiness is in your bank account, then you've got more faith than me. No, if your happiness is in your bank account, what happens when there's a redress, when it all goes down? So, you know, because the people of this world live like that, they know that they really can't control these things. And so they are very, very nervous. They're very, very anxious. And, and some of them are, are, are clear enough to, 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 to admit that actually they've got maybe a weak satisfaction, but there is a vague emptiness. Now they can just stay there at that level, or they can go back through the cycle again and start with some fresh longings and some fresh pursuits. And if the goal is realized, they get what they're looking for, their weak satisfaction and vague emptiness. And that's where a lot of people live. We want to tell them that Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness. John 10, uh, verse, verse 10. Okay, but there is something else that can happen. So we're going to go along the other side. So this is the other side of the equation. We're talking about people who have longings and they've shaped their longings by beliefs where that's going to be met and they have desires in that direction so they're directed towards that goal and develop strategies to reach it. And sometimes, in fact, very often, what happens is we don't get it. Our goal is frustration. Frustrated. On the other side, you remember that's when the goal was partially satisfied. But very often we just don't get what we want. How many people know that? How many people know that you don't always get what you want? And some of us have been longing for stuff all our lives and it never, never happens. And it's not because God doesn't love us. Perhaps it's because he loves us. All right. Okay. So what happens then? This is where emotions come in. So there might be a frustration, either partial or complete. 
And there's a whole range of emotions through frustrated goals, and you can read them here. And it's not a seminar. I'm going to come quickly on how the Holy Spirit sorts us out in this area. And it's very simple. Anger, frustration, these are the major categories of emotions. Anger, frustration, fear, anxiety, guilt feelings, depression feelings or feelings of hopelessness. And uh, each of these anger, uh, each of these emotions negatively are provoked by a certain way in which our goal has been frustrated. So for example, if our goal has been blocked, the emotion is frustration and anger. You can see that. That's very clear. If our goal is uncertain, we're not so sure whether it's going to work out, and if a whole lot depends on it, we are anxious. And if a whole, whole lot depends on it, we're very anxious. So fear and anxiety comes from where there's some sense of uncertainty. I thank God that he gives us a future and a hope. Amen. Now, uh, guilt is where we... Now, this is... Let me say, I'm not now using the word guilt necessarily in a technical theological sense. I'm talking about guilt feelings that come to us which have to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Not all guilt feelings are positive, okay? All right? However, this comes when we judge ourselves to have failed the goal that we've set ourselves to get satisfaction. So what we're saying to ourselves, I'm miserable and it's my fault. So that is a double burn. First of all, you're, you're, you're adding, you, 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 you recognize that you have failed or you haven't got what you want or got what you're looking for and it's your fault. I mean, that is a very, very difficult situation. Very quickly lead on to depression and depression is hopelessness is when you just give up and you say, what I'm looking for, I'm never, ever going to get. So what do you become? Do you become bitter, twisted? Do you start blaming God and you start changing your religion? Let me just say this, and I'm sorry, I'm not just talking about people wanting to be married, which is a very godly and healthy thing. I was in Sweden lecturing on this kind of stuff and um, there was a student there and she was very serious and we discovered later how serious she was. She said, well, you know, if God doesn't provide me a husband, I'm going to go out there and find one for myself and I don't care whether they are Christians or not. Well, God did not provide for her in the way that she wanted. So now she is very far away from God because she's done what she said. Because you see, that became an idol in her life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you have a godly desire to be married, that it's wrong. Of course it's not wrong, it's right. But whatever it is, if it becomes the dominant thing in your life, it becomes an idol. And I promise you, the most wonderful grace of God will shatter your illusion and bring you into realization, hopefully, before too long, that Jesus only satisfies. Okay, so that's basically how it goes. Now, when people get that far, um, it can end, or they can feel the sense of emptiness and go round and round and round the circle. This is where many people live. And sad to say, many Christians live. Many Christians live in that. Just talk to them. 
get to know them a little bit. Get them to be honest. And you be honest with people, and you will find that many people live in this kind of way. Now, that's not the end of the story. There are other ways of reacting and responding, which takes how we start to cope. We start to self-medicate. We start to discipline ourselves, do all kinds of things, get all kinds of religions, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, we're not going to go there tonight, because I think it's about time to get to the Holy Spirit. And so here we have that cycle, um, which, which can be repeated if we're not careful. It can go on and on and on until God breaks in to our life. And we're going to cut straight to the chase and tonight hoping to get a lot of ministry time in. So this is the time when you've got to start saying, praying in tongues and being ready to, to, minister, to minister to these people. Yeah, you can take that. Thank you very much. Take me back to, back to that title. This is such a wonderful story. Because Jesus, in just a short interview and a very modest word of knowledge, now it was sufficient. <laughs> You've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not a husband. So it wasn't just that he could say, yeah, I, I see your life. He, he read her like a book. He opened her up. And she realized that the whole of her life was summarized by the pursuit of these five, six relationships. And it all ended in dissatisfaction. And into that, Jesus, who himself was thirsty and made himself available to this woman at the well so that he could start talking to her, not about buckets and ropes and physical water, but about living water. And if we go back to that passage, what a wonderful passage it is. Because Jesus, first of all, says to her, if you knew who was talking to you, who was asking you for a drink, you would have said, you give me a drink. And he would have given you living water. Now, living water is just running water. But here, it means much more than just running water. It means the water of life. And so... She, he gets through this and she sort of says, still a bit confused, but he, he comes back to again in verse 13. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Jesus is saying, I will satisfy your thirst. And you will find satisfaction in me because the water that I will give you will become in you. <laughs> I love that. Will become in you, not external to you, somewhere where you must go. One of the things that worries me about religion, it's always you've got to go somewhere. You've got to go to this river in this country. You've got to go to that temple in that country. You've got to go to that building in that country. And even some Christians who still get a bit religious forget that Jesus said, the time is coming when you will worship God neither in Jerusalem nor in this mountain. It's not even that Jerusalem has the presence of God in a way that Kensington doesn't. God is everywhere. And the worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, he's accessible. And it's not just that he's accessible. He becomes in you. It's internal. It becomes internal. He places within you a well which is his living presence, the fountain of living water. And so all you have to do is commune with Jesus in your spirit and you can right there become 
satisfied and your thirst can become satisfied. Oh, hallelujah. Let's just do that a little bit here today. Right now, before I finish preaching, let's just do that. Just open your spirit right now. If you have the gift of tongues, just begin to speak in tongues. I always think that reminds me of a babbling brook of living water. Just begin to drink afresh of that water of the Holy Spirit that's rising within you. Come on, people. No, no, that's it. Thank you, Jesus. Fill your people again. Touch your people again. We drink afresh again of the fountain of living water. Thank you that is in us, springing up to everlasting life. Thank you. We thirst. We drink. We're filled. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. A final bit of teaching before we close. Because it's not as simple or as simplistic as saying, okay, you've got Jesus in you, so everything's going to be all right. We have to learn how to surrender our emotions to the Holy Spirit. And if you think about some passages, won't turn to think about some passages. You think about the book of Galatians that says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Whatever else that means, it means that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the, one of the byproducts are, is, the, is the, your emotions are affected. Your emotions are affected, okay? And if you think about the book of Philippians chapter 4, where he says the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds. Remember that one? And it talks about prayer. It talks about trusting God. It, it talks about thinking on the right things. And so the peace of God, the shalom of God, is not essentially an emotion. Somebody can feel very, very peaceful, and without being disrespectful, it could be Prozac. They might feel very, very peaceful. It could be a double brandy. Or, or as some say, a shandy. I don't know. But the point is, is that the, the mere emotion of peace or stillness, it does not guarantee that there is something happening which is a real peace. But when you talk about the shalom of God, it rests on the foundation of the very nature of God. His dealings with you, your trust in Him, and you will have the byproduct of a peaceful experience. That doesn't mean to say that you will never experience a negative emotion. But it does mean that when you have a negative emotion, you can then trace that negative emotion back to what belief is being violated at that time and why you are not being satisfied and you will allow the Holy Spirit to bring an enlightenment to you whereby he will strip away the layers of deception from your heart so there's more room for Jesus and his truth. And when that truth shines in you, the Holy Spirit is like the torch that shines the light of truth in your heart and in your spirit. And you can begin then to learn how to experience the Spirit's moderation of your emotions. Let me give you an example. If you've ever lost a loved one, I mean somebody really close to you, I hope people didn't try to counsel you this way. Cheer up, you'll see them in heaven. The Bible is full of many promises 
And right now, you're going to feel all of them on your head. That's how I'd respond. Bang. Okay. Or, all things work together for good, dear. Yes, they do, dear. Yes, they do. Now, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. But our hope does not eradicate every sorrow and every grief. But it's so moderated because it's controlled by the Spirit's torchlight of truth. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate the deepest recesses of our hearts and minds, you will find that your emotions will be far easier to regulate because your eyes are fixed on Jesus and these moderated emotions are the byproduct of your experience of the Holy Spirit. So we don't think that this means we shall never be sad or never be angry or frustrated. It just means that when the Spirit's in control, very quickly He'll direct us to the truth that shows that the true satisfaction is found in Jesus. And if there's anything positive about feeling frustrated and angry, you will release that energy to fix the problem. Or if there's anything to be gained from feeling low because you've let God down, that's the Spirit will take that emotion and lead you to the feet of Jesus for His grace and His forgiveness. The ever sense of a sense of a loss, and you're grieving out of a, maybe a potential episode of depression. Now, I'm not making light of mental illness. This is another topic altogether. We deal with that in our seminars. I'm talking about people who are struggling with negative emotions, and maybe today you, you feel a sense of loss, and you've given up all hope. You think it's never going to happen. I'm never going to be married. I'm never going to have a child. I'm never going to have that job. I'm never going to pass that exam. I want to say God has given you a future and a hope. Yes, he has. He's given you something and, and somehow, you're not saying it's easy, you don't dismiss these negative emotions. But when you focus on the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone satisfies, that will pass every test, even the final test. Yesterday, I attended the opening of City Gates Elim Church, which is one of the splendid churches in Ilford, run by... Elam pastors and great church and new building. And the pastor described the great difficulties that he'd gone through. The building actually had collapsed. Thank God nobody was hurt. But there's, there was a lawsuit and all kinds of stuff, but let's leave that on one side. But they went through great, great agony. And the pastor described this story, which I think is amazing. He's talking about a young would-be minister, somebody who's just maybe a minister in training. We have several here tonight or maybe a cell leader in training. And they were called to somebody's deathbed in hospital. And so the pastor, or whoever, this leader, leaned over to the lady who was obviously failing. Her life was ebbing away. And said, are you sinking, dear? Uh, uh, That's how not to talk. That's not a good bedside manner. Not a good pastoral manner. Anyway, this is the story. The lady, gasping for breath, managed to open her eyes and speak to this pastor and say, you can't sink through a rock. Isn't that interesting? No matter how low you go, and maybe even at the point of death, 
That might be the lowest moment of your life. Well, you say, of course it is about to die, but I mean emotionally. Even there, there is a solid foundation of the nature and the character of God. And you will be so glad on that day that you put your feet on the solid rock and you have pursued him with all of your heart because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the beauty of Jesus and you know that satisfaction is in him and him alone. Give Jesus a big praise. Amen and amen and amen. <laughs>